listening to the CIPD podcast series. Hello and welcome to the CIPD podcast series. In this programme, we're focusing on reward. We'll be hearing from reward specialists from some very different organisations and sectors. And we'll be getting an insight into the findings from the latest CIPD reward survey. But first, we caught up with Adrian Furnham. He's Professor of Psychology at University College London and an expert on psychology in the workplace. I asked him about the role reward plays in engaging and motivating people at work. I think what a number of uh, workers find is that there's a mismatch between what the organisation says its values are and, indeed, what the values turn out to be in terms of various various forms of rewards. So they'll talk a great deal about work-life balance and then insist that you stand till the job is finished, that sort of thing. Now, the interesting thing about reward systems is um, if you have uh, personal performance-related rewards, that tends to have a serious deleterious effect on teamwork. And so you'll have a value like, you know, the organization says teamwork's very important, cooperation and so forth, and yet the reward system directly means that you're likely to compete with your uh, uh, colleagues. And so there's a good example of the values of an organization um, and the uh, reward strategies being incompatible. So, so how should reward professionals respond to this then? I see the problem. What's the answer? <laughs> well, my feeling is that organisations should, when they put up their mission statements and their values and things, pay a little more attention to what they really do do and try and get those in alignment. Um, I think some of them are just serious wish lists. It's difficult for people who work in reward because it's a complicated issue. There are many different features and factors associated with what reward. And people do trade-offs. They will do... Um, more or less money for more time, higher status for less money, or whatever. And people will, of course, differ according to their age and stage um, and according to their levels. And so to come up with a, a, a sort of simple, relatively effective uh, reward policy is very problematic for individuals. And, of course, things change over time. As the economy is going down or appears to be going down, then certain things will be more important than others. It's certain, you certainly have to be very flexible as someone working in reward these days. Charles Cotton, reward advisor at the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, is responsible for the CIPD's annual reward management survey. He's just finished this year's report, and many of the findings chime with Adrian's assessment of the challenges facing reward professionals. I asked Charles about this year's survey. I think one of the key findings is, to a certain extent, the disjunct between what organisations are trying to do at a strategic level, at a business level, and actually what they're doing at an operational level when it comes to reward and benefits. So organisations are focusing on um, rewarding people according to their contribution, according to their performance. But few organisations are actually following that through by carrying out, for instance, an equal pay review. Similarly, many organisations in our sample had an employer brand. But when we asked organisations how well do your reward policies and practices support the employer brand, the uh, overall response was actually they were not sure or they didn't think it particularly supported it. So still quite a lot of evidence that people are doing the right things, but they're not, jo- they're not joining them up within their own organisations? Yes, it's almost that you've got different realities. On one hand, you've got um, the business reality, organisations looking at environmental policies, looking at employer branding, and on the other hand, you've got actually what's going on uh, in another reality, which is you know, the day-to-day that the reward practitioners, the HR practitioners face. 
What's the answer here for, for HR practitioners? Because, you know, obviously they, they only control their own area, don't they? Mm. So h- how, how can they go about bringing everything together in that coherent way that you've just described? Well, I think they need to adopt some kind of strategic approach to actually look at what the organisation's doing and then look, actually, do what we do when it comes to paying benefits, actually help the organisation or actually hinder the organisation in this area. Um, the need to start taking up a, a total reward approach by looking at all the offering that the organisation has, financial and non-financial, um, bringing that together and then considering actually does this appeal to people regardless of their age, their gender, their responsibility for children or elders. Uh, organisations also need to start thinking about how they evaluate these policies and processes. You can find out more about the latest CIPD reward survey in the show notes that accompany this programme. They're online at cipd.co.uk slash podcasts. John Marsden is HR Director for the Honda Racing F1 team. He's working in a pretty unique organisation, employing 600 people across a wide range of roles, many of them working away from home on a regular basis. I asked him how they align the strategy of the business with their reward package. You've got a whole array of people from, from guys on the shop floor actually machining bits for your cars, right through to Jensen Button who drives it. Oh, how, how do you formulate a strategy that rewards all of those and actually incentivizes all of those people? The way we look at it is that um, we, we, we try and re- reward people, if you like, on a level playing field. We, we, we don't really recognise a, a difference of people who, who, who travel. We don't want this uh, difference between the race team and the rest of the factory. We don't want prima donnas within the company. So, so the guy who's working on a machine, to us, is just as important as the, as the mechanic who's doing a pit stop. We are probably paying a premium for the sort of people we need and the commitment we need, about 20 to 25% against the general labour marketplace. We don't pay people for overtime. We expect them to do an awful lot for the team. And as I say, we like to take care of them when when they're with us. That brings me neatly to my next point, actually. You have a very strong emphasis on including the family within your reward structure, don't you? Why is that? Well, I suppose, really, I mean, it's... um, it's basically in our own self-interest because we, we demand an awful lot of people. We've got some incredibly talented people and we want them focused on the job. And um, you know, we, we, we would not want to have people, if you like, having in the back of their minds any issues about... For, for instance, I mean, a lot of businesses I've worked for, so someone will come to you and say they want their son to do work experience. And it, uh, there's always been a hoo-ha about whether it can be accommodated and stuff like that. We always do it. We just make it happen. I mean, we, we, we feel that's a duty we owe to our people. And the guys feel good because, because they, they know that you know, anything to do like that, we will make it happen. But, but it is basically in our own interest because, I mean, when people are away from home, for instance, and that's not only, only if they're racing, you've got guys who are working sort of 50 or 60 hours a week at this time of the year, that um, you know, I mean, we, we, we really need to make sure that um, their whole mind's concentrated on the job. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. There's a lot being said and written about the prospects for an economic slowdown. I asked Adrian Furnham about the implications for reward professionals and particularly for his assessment of the impact on the psychology of employees. I think, first of all, they will value security more. Uh, secondly, people won't take, change jobs anymore. 
I was speaking to somebody just today about uh, he's a, a person who is an HR headhunter, as it happens, and he said we're having difficulty getting people to move. They go for security, and security means uh, steady as we go. Do you think that there will be more emphasis on, on pay packet rather than softer benefits, that they will just be more interested in, in cash because, as you say, they're concerned about their mortgages going up? It's difficult to say. I think that it, it differs from sector to sector, from level to level. I think if, if uh, employees say there isn't any money, and in some instances there genuinely isn't, then they will go for softer options because the softer options are more available to them. For instance, one could have a, a, a sexier job title, uh, and some people will go for that. It's surprising in some organisations the extent to which people trade off uh, money for job title. It's a, it's a form of... Um, of uh, self-esteem, of self-identification. And so you might find that that will occur in harder times, whereas in, in uh, more successful times there's more money sloshing about and it's easier to get, to get the cash. So how will employers respond to the prospect of changing expectations from employees? I asked Charles Cotton what he was expecting to see. I think there will obviously be an issue about wanting to retain and engage high performers, and in which case I think there will be more targeted approach to reward rather than kind of smearing it across all employees. And to a certain extent that's already been reflected in the private sector service firms where fewer organisations are making an across-the-board pay increase. Instead they're rather kind of focusing it on an individual's contribution, looking at their performance, how long have they been with the organisation. Do you see that as a, as a widespread and growing tr trend, this focus on paying people for what they actually do, what they give the organisation, rather than across the board? I think organisations are increasingly aware that the payroll is a large proportion of their total expenditure. So if you're going to the service sector, it could actually be up to 80% of total expenditure is accounted for um, paying benefits. So organisations say, well, actually, what benefits are we actually getting from this huge amount of investment? So they're going to be more inclined to tie it strictly to performance? I think they'll be a bit more savvy than in the past when organisation just looked at individual performance. I think they'll look at a wider definition, perhaps rather than just looking at the output, they'll also look at the inputs in terms of uh, competencies, in terms of skills. What are the bear traps here for HR professionals? What, what are the really damaging things that they can do to, to undermine the psychological trust mm. contract between employer and employee? The greatest problem, without, in my view, without any doubt, is the measurement of performance. If you have any form of performance-related reward, which many organisations try for, then you have to measure performance. Now, if you're selling widgets, you can measure number of calls, you can measure number of sales, and so forth. But for most of us, that's very problematic. How do you measure performance, and how accurate is that measure of performance? If you're going to incentivize me and reward me for my performance, then first of all, I need to value the reward you're going to give me. But equally, I have to feel that that performance is well measured and well evaluated. Now, whether one is going to do this through a hay point system or do it through some other measure, I don't know. That's enormously difficult. I, I, I sympathise with anyone in HR trying to do that, but I think work on that first. Make sure that you try and have robust, sensitive and manifold measures of performance, and you do better. At KPMG, they've tackled the need for just such a robust system of measuring performance. I asked Samantha G, their European Head of Reward, to explain how they've gone about it. 
We have a, um, a, a nine-box system, if you can imagine a grid, so that we can, on one axis, look at what somebody's achieved in terms of their business goals, and on the other, look at how they've achieved it. And we adopt a, um, an approach of forcing the distribution of ratings within that nine-box to reinforce our performance culture. Now, this is quite a controversial thing to do, yeah, is it? Yeah. This is the idea that you, you force managers not to put their people in the middle of the range. That's right. And you have, you have a certain proportion of people in each box. Um, and in essence, you're making a relative judgment. So who are relatively the better people and who are relatively not as good amongst your, your team. Now, obviously, any of these measuring and monitoring systems are only as good as the line managers who actually implement yeah. them. How do you go about training them? About two or three years ago, we introduced a programme that we call Managing for Excellence, and that's where we have identified who in the firm is accountable for people management. So a big step forward for us is that we actually know who they are now, and they know they're accountable and how for many people, people are we management. talking about? It's about 400 out of 11,000 employees. So typically, they're managers of managers. So these people may have a team of sort of 80 or 100 people. Uh, reporting into them and th- once we um, once we know who we're dealing with we can um, have conferences with that group and we have bi-monthly newsletters and we create presentations for them to use with their teams in their team meetings so we have a, a, an avenue into that group of people the prospect of greater reward in return for superior performance at KPMG isn't just a motivator for those already working there. Samantha told me about the role played by the performance-related element of their package in attracting new talent. What differentiates KPMG amongst our immediate competitors is that we have a bigger element of variable pay. Um, so we've worked closely with the uh, recruitment team to train them to talk about the bonus and to give them the figures that they might use in talking to a prospective candidate. And how do your applicant centre respond to this? Do you find, obviously it's a difficult thing to quantify, but do you find that by presenting them with what might be perceived as a slightly more entrepreneurial package in a way, in the sense that the more they put in, the more they will financially financially get out of it, do you find you're getting a a different sort of applicant? Um, That's the theory. The theory is, Dan, yeah. Um, Yes, I would say so. The theory is the people that are attracted to that kind of um, reward environment will be those that think they'll benefit from it. So that'll be those who feel they have skills or, you know, a real contribution to make. And it will excite some people, and those are the people that we feel we want in the firm. Based on your experience of the scheme so far, are you finding that these people are estimating their own capabilities accurately and that they actually are getting the rewards that they expect to get you always have the dilemma that i think it is something like 80 percent of people think they're above average which which doesn't (laughs) it doesn't doesn't always fit if i look at our people survey um, we've certainly made um, quite a movement in our employees perception of whether we fairly link their performance and their reward about half of the firm responded positively to that question this year. Um, And that's probably um, close to the optimum, I would say. You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. We've heard about varied approaches to reward strategy that work for the Honda racing team and KPMG. I asked Adrian how best to go about understanding the reward approach that will work for different employees in different circumstances. 
Looking at this from a, a, a completely practical standpoint, how are practitioners to, to get their arms around that? Should they just spend more time surveying their staff and asking them what they want rather than imposing solutions? Mm-hmm. What is the way to get this right? Yes, it, it's not easy. I think what is clear is that certain sectors will be different. People are uh, motivated more by money by going to the city than they are by a number of other things. Uh, money is associated with many other things as well, but uh, so there's a sector difference that that's, that's quite uh, fundamentally important. Then, of course, there's age and stage. I was talking to a man the other day who shocked me profoundly by saying the best thing about working at his organisation was that he could buy holidays from it. Um, he, I can't remember what it was, uh, eight to ten thousand pounds a week or something like that. Now he was a cash-rich, time-poor individual as a function of his age. And so he couldn't be incentivized by much more money. Or he could be, but it would have to be a great deal more money. And so I think you'll find people, uh, as people get older, time is more valuable than, than money. As people are younger, money is more valuable than time. What motivates different employees is particularly relevant to Janet Fleming. She's head of the Workforce Hub for the third sector at the NCVO, and she's an expert on voluntary sector employment. I asked her for her thoughts on the approaches to reward that she thinks work best. Would you say you face a tougher challenge in your sector rewarding your people than, than your counterparts in the private and, and public sectors because you just it's not about money, you have to think harder? I do think that there are more people now who want more out of a job than money. 75% of people find being valued one of the most important motivators. That's top of the list of what motivates you. So we have to work cleverly on that, I think. How do you set about rewarding them? If you, if, if you come from a starting place where you're saying, we can pay you a reasonable amount of money but not a vast amount, what else can you do for them? I think the sector is quite clever about using non-financial reward. I think, you know, moving into things like flexible working, allowing people work-life balance. Um, we have a much higher proportion of part-time workers than either the private or the um, public sector. Do you find that you need to concentrate harder on things like helping people shape their careers, giving them skills, transferable skills they can take elsewhere, training them, perhaps focusing on that aspect more? I do think that's, I think that's very important. And again, particularly in the smaller organisations who can't do much apart from be flexible and who have much lower salaries, there are lots of chief executives or senior managers, both in the voluntary sector and in the public sector, probably more than the private sector, who learnt their skills doing a managerial job in a very small organisation where you have to three, three people at once every day. Um, and therefore you learn to run very fast, much faster than you would in a larger, more structured, richer organisation where you're given smaller jobs to do, I think. Let's talk about demographics for a moment, because I think it's, it's probably fair to say that working in the non-profit and voluntary sector has become infinitely more fashionable for young people than I think perhaps it's ever been in my lifetime. It's something that really bright, smart graduates aspire to, and they're competing for, for the great jobs that are on offer. Now, I can see how they arrive very excited about the prospect of doing a really rewarding job for not a lot of money, and I can see how that works for them in their 20s. When they get into their 30s, and perhaps they've settled down and perhaps they have children and a mortgage, how do you keep them on board? How do you not have a brain drain of those very valuable people when they have to start counting the cash and think, really, I could do with a private sector salary? I think within an organisation, that's probably... Not possible. It's not that there are no routes up in the sector and some of them will stay by moving up within the sector in different organisations. 
Others will move on, but then you have the next tranche coming out. So you have to think of not necessarily having a static workforce. I don't think that's necessarily what you'd work for, as long as you can keep replacing them. They might have to go out and get a um, a job that pays better during their family years, and then, you know, in their late 40s and 50s, when those responsibilities go down, come back, because there are a lot of people who move from other sectors back into our sector. Indeed, that brings me neatly to my next point, actually. What about the other end of the demographic scale? How do you reward people who perhaps come to you, as you say, they either return after a career elsewhere, a mid-career elsewhere, or they come to you for the first time, perhaps in the private or public sector, later in their lifetime when they're still very keen to work or indeed need to work? How do you manage them? Well, I think, um, I think the challenge that you face as a manager in our sector on the whole, where you are trying to do an awful lot with less money, is in itself a very interesting and intriguing challenge for people at that time in their life because they'll have learnt to have achieved quite a lot by then. And so to be able to bring this kind of skills and knowledge they've got to a more challenging environment, I do think that that is a motivator. It's clear that different organisations need different approaches. So is there such a thing as the perfect reward strategy? I put that question to Adrian. Can a reward strategy ever be a truly good fit for all the people who are subjected to it? I think there's no nirvana like that. I think, you know, the idea of having... every When you go around from organisation to organisation as an academic or a consultant, they all want to know about who's got the right system, who, where does it work best... And you can say where it works better rather than where it works best. I think, you know, to, to search for a magic formula, a magic bullet, is, is, uh, is a hopeless um, um, uh, attempt to try and find the holy grail. I think one can get better systems and do it better. Sometimes it's through trial and error. Sometimes it's through having a good, robust, sensitive system. But there's always going to be fury. There's always going to be angry people. There's always going to be those who are dissatisfied. And I think one simply has to live with that, however robust your system is. Certainly plenty of food for thought there. Whether it's trial and error or robust systems that hold the key to developments in the reward strategy in your organisation, I hope you've got something out of this podcast. Remember, you can find the notes that accompany the programme at cipd.co.uk slash podcasts. I'll be back next month with a new podcast taking a look at the cross-functional challenge of employer branding. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series.